Welcome to a Words, Beats, and Life podcast. This episode features the Alternative Winter Break series. What's going on, world? It's yours truly, Mazi Mutafa, here for another edition of the Alternative Winter Break Media Arts Edition. This one's a little special to me. Uh, this brother I've got on by the name of Dr. Jason Nichols. Some of y'all know him as Jesus. Some of y'all just know him as Jason. Um, I know this guy all the way back to College Park. We would sit in African-American studies classes and argue over the readings that I literally (laughs) never did, (laughs) and he always did. So it made it very easy for him to defeat me in those rhetorical jousts. Um, But over the years, we've we've had some shared readings, some shared experiences, and I'm super happy to have him here as our guest. Uh, Let me go and welcome this brother in. What's going on, Dr. Nichols? What's going on, brother? It's good to see you. You, you know, well. I, I feel like it's been so long because of COVID that I haven't been able to share time with uh, you and your lovely wife and, and, you know, our families get together. But, you know, hopefully that will be behind us soon. We'll all be vaccinated uh, and we'll be able to spend some time together. You're not getting vaccinated? Come on. All right, that's another conversation. <laughs> I'm getting vaccinated. My wife has already gotten the first injection, but... We will see you sooner rather than later, God willing. Uh, regardless, I know that um, that you and your lovely family have been thriving during this time to the degree that you can. Um, I, I've been witnessing you on on social media, dealing with haters. I really, I, I really feel like there's some sort of a hashtag like hate Dr. Nichols, where all of them find you. <laughs> I'd be like, yo, why do we even talk to these people? But I, th- but I feel like I trained you for that at the University of Maryland dealing with irrational arguments without losing your cool, so you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate all the help. No doubt. So uh, I, wanna, I wanna begin this conversation, and I, I, I begin them all the same way, and to be honest, it's selfish. I, I know tons of people, but don't really know them, like know their history, their family, like the fact that I've known you for probably 25 years now, and I'm gonna learn things about you in this conversation on the internet that I haven't learned in person. Um, so let, let's begin with the question that I kick off all the interviews with, which is, how far back does your own knowledge of your family go? How, how deep is your knowledge of your family tree? So, um, you know, and obviously like many people, like everybody, I have habits to my family, but I would say um, I can at least trace one part of my family all the way back before the American Revolution um, as, you know, free Africans, you know, free in quotations in, in Northern Virginia. Um, there's a grave site around Loudoun County, Virginia that has uh, some of my ancestors there. And that, you know, those go back before the revolution and before the constitution and all of that. Um, and you know i think my roots run really deep it's really you know kind of an honor and a blessing to have that kind of knowledge um if you go to the national museum of african-american history and culture uh there is an exhibit there where it has a man's freedom papers uh from loudon county virginia and that man is my six times great uncle um and 
he, you know, he had a little tin box that he kept his freedom papers in. Uh, and they have the free, the uh, not only the papers, but the tin box also uh, on display. Because, you know, I think about the, the anxiety he must have had going out every day with those freedom papers in that box. You couldn't get them wet. You couldn't lose them. You had to be careful who you showed them to or who you handed them over to. Um, and he had to be very concerned every time he left his home uh, to bring his freedom papers uh, because you could, as everybody saw 12 years a slave and other situations where, you know, uh, there was always somebody who was eager to make a buck um, off of a black body. Um, so I can trace my family there back very far. Um, but I can also, you know, trace uh, my paternal family. My Well, that's my paternal grandmother's family. My paternal grandfather's family is from the Caribbean. Um, so originally we can trace them to um, Barbados, a small island in the southern part of the Caribbean. Um, and in Barbados, uh, you know, they lived and I know that uh, my great grandmother in Barbados her family were big landowners. Um, and in part because her father, I believe, was a white man. And when you had, you know, whites owned the land there, British, Scottish people owned the land. But he allowed for his daughters to inherit that land. And apparently they fought over the land. Uh, he, uh, She did and one of her sisters. Um, I may be getting this story wrong. It may have been her mother. I'm not even sure. But um, And this is all broken down in this actual story written by a famous uh, Harlem Renaissance writer by the name of Eric Walren, who is a distant cousin of mine. He was my grandfather's first cousin. And he was, he's one of the forgotten people from the Harlem Renaissance, but uh, he was very famous. He was as famous as, you know, all the others, Langston Hughes and others at the time. Um, and he was raised in Panama. Um, and a lot of people from Barbados and other Caribbean islands, Jamaica, uh, they went over in the early part of the, part of the 20th century to Panama to build the canal. My family was very similar. Um, also went to, to Panama uh, to work the canal. Um, and many stayed in, in Panama. Uh, you know, many Caribbean people stayed in Panama. My family decided to come to the United States uh, from Central America. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I like to say that my family's always been international in that way. I know that they spent some time uh, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother spent some time in Trinidad as missionaries and then Panama as laborers and then came to New York City. Uh, my mother's family I know very little about. Uh, her father, um, honestly, I really found out about him from Google searching and uh, finding out you know, when he died. And the only reason I was able to find anything is because of his military service. He served in World War II as a sailor. Um, my mother's mother, I know bits and pieces about, 
she was born in South Carolina, as was uh, my mother's father, uh, and came to New York City with her siblings when she was very young, uh, got very little education, but was somebody who was always very creative and very ambitious. And so when she got to New York City, she always had a hustle way to provide for herself and her three children that she essentially raised alone. Um, and so she had a very big impact on me, uh, as did my other grandmother, who's still alive, who's 92, who through this COVID situation, not only have I not gotten an opportunity to see Mozzie, uh, I've not gotten an opportunity to see my, my 92 year old grandmother, which has been you know difficult, you know, trying to keep her safe. But one of the things I keep finding out things about my family, I, I found out, you know, during the whole situation with the Electoral College that my grandmother casted an electoral ballot, was the first woman and first black woman in the state of Rhode Island to cast an electoral ballot. Um, and that was, you know, very significant. We have all these, you know, nobody's famous in my family but we have people who have done significant things um so i mean that's kind of my family history going into my you know my parents uh obviously my grandfather um you know or excuse me my 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 father grew up pretty middle class my grandfather was a professor he started out as a professor at uh at Hampton University where he met my grandmother. He was a professor, she was a student, kind of scandalous, wasn't scandalous at the time, would be scandalous today. Um, but he was uh, her professor, they got along really well, they ended up getting married and having children and being married for, you know, 60 years or so before my, or 50, I guess, years or so before my grandfather uh, past. <clears throat> and he was a professor. And one of the interesting things about him was that he was teaching at Hampton and, you know, he taught at Morgan State and he realized he wasn't going to get the kind of jobs that he wanted. And he experienced so much racism here in the United States that he took his family, packed everybody up and moved to Europe, moved to Germany. So you got to think there was a black family uh living in post-world war ii germany <laughs> uh, i always think that that's really really interesting and also gives me kind of that you know international perspective is that you know my grandparents and my dad was raised in germany uh he's to this day he, he and his one of his brothers is fluent in german uh and you know he stayed in germany my grandfather until he got the kind of job offer that he thought he deserved. And so he taught at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. So my dad's background is a lot more middle-class, uh, a lot more educated. You know, his his parents were educated. Uh, his aunts and uncles were educated for the most part. And so uh, he came from more of a middle-class black background. Uh, being middle-class black was different than being middle-class white, but it was still, you know, he came from that kind of a solid uh, background in terms of, you know, class, not skipping any meals, um, you know, uh, 
education, being readily available, going to good schools, learning, uh, living in, in, you know, I guess relatively integrated environments, certainly overseas where, you know, there was no formal segregation, but there weren't also a lot of black people. Um, and he actually tells some very interesting stories coming over from Germany uh, to the United States in the middle of the black power movement <laughs> as a black man who was raised in Germany coming to New York City. And, it, you know, one day I'm going to do a movie uh, about his experience, uh, you know, basically being a black guy, but really being almost German in terms of the way he, you know, he was, uh, you know, the way he thought. It was a little, the world was a lot more separated then. Being European was very different than being American. It's not so different now that we have all these things that connect us. Um, but my mother's background was very different. You know, my mother's background was very impoverished. Um, she grew up, you know, basically a single mother. Of course, she knew her father. He was kind of in and out, but she knew him and, and sometimes spent time growing up with his sisters um, in Brooklyn, but uh, was raised between Brooklyn and Harlem. And she, uh, you know, she and my aunt and my uncle um, lived kind of a rough and tumble upbringing in public housing in New York City uh, without a whole lot. Um, education was secondary to survival. Um, and my mother ended up joining the military, uh, as did one of my uncles. So my mother was military for a short period of time. Um, and she was also working, you know, she was, uh, in the reserves and she also worked in a hospital and that's where she met my dad, who was a physician. Um, and they met in New York city at Sinai hospital. And uh, my mother had already, you know, she was already a single mother at the time. <clears throat> so that was a little bit of a controversy within my dad's family. But, uh, and then that's where you get the beauty that you see before you. <laughs> but that's uh, pretty much my, my family story. That's who my parents are. Um, you know, my mother went later and, you know, got an associate's degree. Um in Philadelphia, where we moved um, later on, uh, you know, pretty much immediately after I was born, my family moved to Philadelphia. And then after growing up in Philadelphia for about six years, uh, my family moved um, to Maryland. And that's where I've been ever since. So let's talk about um, the first recollection you have um so as, as you know, this is a, a media arts um, set of conversations. So this idea of talking to creatives who work in media in particular. So um, can you tell me about your earliest recollection of doing anything creative? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a that's a think You know, my best early recollection of doing anything creative um, is probably dance, um, you know, b-boying or breaking or however you want to call it. Um, 
you know, during the, the period in the early 80s when you had it on Coke commercials and, and actually even before then, you know, I, I can say one of the beautiful things about having a connection to New York and to, um, you know, Manhattan and Harlem and, you know, um, I'm very conscious just in case you, you don't recognize, I'm very conscious about the way I say Harlem because uh, Mozzie makes fun of the way that I say it. So I have to, I'm very conscious of pronouncing the R in Harlem. Um, uh, but yeah, so um, I think it was, you know, b-boying and, you know, I, I, some of my early memories actually were seeing people breaking down cardboard. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, the people on my block in in the park and in the center and all of that, like, you know, doing the things that some some of my friends who grew up in Maryland and friends who grew up in, in other places, you know, that they only see in movies. I actually saw some of that. I actually saw people bombing walls and all of that. I'm not saying I understood it, you know, and I had the, the historical background, you know, that I knew where it started and this and that. I actually saw guys in my neighborhood, you know, who were friends with my sister wearing Zulu beads. You know, I knew about Zulu beads. I didn't know what Zulu Nation was about, what it stood for. But, you know, being able to learn those things later and see it up front and, and make the connection and connect the dots is something that I feel really blessed about in terms of... Uh, my experience growing up but i was always interested in the dance because that's what got the crowds around you know what i mean um the community that i'm from in new york city is primarily latino is, is speaking or it was not anymore um was primarily a, a puerto rican a working class puerto rican neighborhood it wasn't the south bronx it wasn't the poorest neighborhood or anything like that it was a, a working class um you know, Puerto Rican neighborhoods. So you had, you know, uh, people who worked working class jobs, you know, stacking boxes or, you know, fixing cars or whatever it was. Um, and it was a vibrant community. And, um, Do you remember how old you were when, when you saw this? Do you remember like, roughly how old you were? I had to be about, I mean, early memories had to be four or five. Okay. You know, I mean, when I tried it and started, I was probably six, you know, and the thing is, when you're a little kid, you have ability and strength, actually, you know, body weight strength. So b-boying actually comes pretty naturally, you know, um, that's what I think is cool whenever I watch like b-boying and, and breaking with little kids and people are always impressed by what little kids do, but a lot of times in the back of my mind, I'm like, it's easier for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got incredible flexibility that he won't have in 10 years unless he keeps this up every day. Um, so, you know, I, I I honestly think I, you know, I was pretty decent. I was a decent B-boy at the time, you know, because I could do a split and I could, you know, put my legs behind my head and I could spin on my head. And I remember um, my mom making me stop dancing publicly um, and getting involved in those kind of b-boy ciphers 
Um, Cause I actually brought it back to my suburban neighborhood. And because there was a rumor that, this is kind of funny, you know, and maybe Mazi you'll remember this, but there was a rumor that Alfonso Ribeiro, uh, who later became Carlton in um, The Fresh Prince had broken his neck by spinning on his head. You remember that, Masi? I don't know. But um, that was the rumor. And so, you know, that was one of my special moves was the spinning on my head. And, um, you know, my mother had forbidden me from doing that. But that was something coming up with new moves. I can remember actually coming up with new things. Of course, first you emulate what you see. But then, you know, you start to put your own little spin on it, even when you're young. And, you know, I probably think if I had had like a dance mentor, like if I had lived um, in New York, I didn't. I lived in Maryland uh, once, you know, once I got a little older. If I had had that, um, that mentor, you know, like an older dance mentor, uh, I probably would have kept up with it. But that was the first time I started seeing my own creativity. Like, you know, when I was watching dudes battling and seeing exactly like what they were doing, I was like, how can I do that? But put my own little spin on it. So that's where I think my creativity first started coming out. That's what's up. P.S. Uh, our good friend Black Picasso responded, I remember that uh, to the Carlton uh, Alfonso Rivera uh, rumor. So, uh, so this is interesting. So your mother forbids you. How does that stay in effect, or does, or, or, and you move on to something else, or do you just stop doing it in public in ways that she would find out about? I think the other thing is, and, and we all know the history of, of b-boying. I think a lot of it was that b-boying kind of went out of style. Hmm. Like it, it, you know, I wasn't as devoted to the art form at. You know, I was like, this is cool, this is hot. This is what gets, you know, my sister's friends excited. You know, they come over, they're, you know, I'm eight and they're 15 or 14 or whatever, you know, and they're like, oh, he's so cute, you know? And so I was, you know, I was liking to dance for the attention. And then when B-Boying, you know, got so commercial that it was in, you know, Coke ads and, you know, all of that. And then the streets kind of moved on from it. Um, I think the rest of us, particularly kids who were raised in the suburbs, we follow what the streets do. And at a certain point in the mid to late 80s, you know, with the advent of, of gangster rap and things like that, you know, and even to a certain extent, New Jack Swing. I mean, I still danced. I did, you know, I did the New Jack Swing dances. But you know, it, I think I just kind of moved on and, and stopped doing it after that. So if you were eight years old, that, that means you were in like the third grade. Are, are there are there other uh, creative memories you have from elementary school or, or, or does creativity kind of take up later stage? Um, By creativity, I mean like anything, it could be writing, it could be, uh, I guess I froze, it could be writing. It could be music. What What's the next creative thing that you pick up? I think the, the next creative thing was music and rapping. Um, I'd always been in love with it. I, I still remember, you know, first um, 
you know, I, I remember, so one of my earliest memories, I guess this isn't necessarily creativity, but one of my earliest memories in, from Philadelphia when I was like, you know, just above speaking age was the message. You know, the message used to play in Philadelphia all the time. And knowing that those lines don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> you know, it was like, it's like a jungle sometimes. And I could repeat that when I was, you know, I don't, I don't know, four, <laughs> you know, like I could repeat those words because it played so often. Um, and I was, uh, you know, so I, I think rap music had always kind of had a, had a part of my heart. And then I remember my sister had the 12 inch, the Run DMC 12 inch. And I remember the King of Rock was my favorite. Or was that Rockbox? Sorry, Rockbox. You know, but just that first couple of bars where, you know, DMC is saying, I'm the King of Rock. There is none higher. Sucker MCs should call me sire to burn my kingdom. You must use fire. I won't stop rocking till I retire. Um, and I just remember like just those those drums and we, you know, like a lot of families at the time, we had the, the big like stereo with the big speakers. And when we would put that record on, and of course, you know, we listen to Prince and, you know, Michael Jackson and all of that, but something about that record and, and that particular song, you know, I just loved it, you know, um, and, you know, Run, I thought Run was dope too, but there was something about DMC's voice at the beginning of that song that, that really kind of grabbed me. So I think I started... Again, I don't know how creative it is, but knowing other people's rhymes at the time, you know, so I guess I'm the original biter, you know what I'm saying? But knowing other people's rhymes and the rhymes that stuck in my head. Um, and I remember the first mixtape that my sister brought back from New York, because my sister used to live in New York. And so she would come back and bring me tapes, you know, um cassette tapes and this is like early you know what i mean like i don't even know if they were mixed i don't know how it was but she bring a tape and i still remember i think this was um i want to say it was um schoolie d where he had this rhyme where he was like went to the store brought me a 40. got kind of high and uh kind of drunk so i had to beat up this little punk. <laughs> and and I, I don't know, whatever that rhyme was, like I used to love that rhyme, you know what I mean? If anybody knows that song, let me know. I still don't know the title of that song, but it was on the tape, you know, there was no track listing. It was just a blank tape, you know, that my sister used to bring back. Um, and I didn't even know what a 40 was at the time. Um, and, you know, just the, the getting that and then getting into like, you know, we were in elementary school and somebody would have an NWA tape and we would just pass it around. Um, you know, getting into the music. I didn't know how I was necessarily going to contribute at that point. 
but I was like, you know, just loving other people's creativity. Um, so I wouldn't say creativity necessarily took a break, but I think it was just building up inside me where it was like, you know what? I have my own experiences. You know what I mean? I have my own stories that I want to share. I have my own thoughts. And you know what? The song that made me want to rap, you know, where I was like, yo, I'm gonna write my first rhyme. I still remember, um, was a song called My Philosophy from KRS-One. I knew I couldn't authentically, being from where I'm from and all that, I couldn't authentically say, you know, some of the gangster stuff that I heard Ice Cube say, or, you know, the stuff I heard other rappers say. Um, but, you know, I was really into black history. And, and like I said, my dad came to this country um, and was essentially learning how to be black, <laughs> learning how to be black American, you know what I mean? So he was kind of learning a lot. And so he had every black power book you could think of. And I used to, you know, flip through those and read those. And that's actually what got me to, I think my, um, my profession um, in terms of teaching. But, you know, I used to read those, you know, those books and I heard my philosophy and, you know, that's something about that sample that I think very deeply, you know what I mean? It was like, yo, I think deeply, <laughs> you know what I mean? I can do this. And, and that's when I started kind of writing my own rhymes. How old were you when you, when you were, when you wrote your first rhyme? Do you remember? Probably 12, maybe. Probably 12 or 13. So you're in eighth grade, so you're like you're in middle school or, or your freshman year in high school. I think it was earlier than that. Maybe, maybe it was sixth grade or something like that. Maybe I was eleven. I I, I think I was, uh, I was probably eleven or maybe even ten. But I, I think I was old enough that I would want to write something. Gotcha. But a little younger. I was definitely younger than high school. And so you decide. Is it, at this point, do you decide like, I'm gonna really like dedicate myself to writing? Like you've got books of rhymes or you're signing up for school talent shows. Like how does this show up in terms of moving from writing your first rhyme to kind of committing yourself to Um, I started writing my rhymes, but kind of like Nas said, where he was like, you know, I was too scared to, you know, you know, uh, grab the mics in the parks and kick my little raps because I thought people wouldn't understand. You know, I, I I didn't, I was afraid to actually, you know, share my rhymes with anybody. Um, it was just something I kind of did in private. You know, um, I didn't have a, a rhyme book at the time I was writing on, you know, in my class notebooks, you know, you would find, you know, my history notes and then all of a sudden you find a rhyme. Um, and I think it was when I got to high school um, that I was like, there was a guy that I knew who had the confidence. Shout out to him. Shout out to Ricky Garcia. Um, and Ricky was another suburban kid with roots in New York. And Ricky, one thing Ricky had was confidence. I'll be honest with you, Ricky, I love you, but I never thought your rhymes were that great, but you had the confidence 
that puts you above the rest of us. You were willing to grab the mic. You were willing to get in the middle of the circle and spit the rhyme. You know what I'm saying? And Ricky, I started sharing some of my rhymes with Ricky and some of my other friends. And I still remember when I got their respect. When I spit a rhyme, because at first they were like, oh, boo. <laughs> and I remember when I spit a rhyme where it was like, yeah, I got the best rhyme here. None of y'all can mess with this. You know what I mean? And it, it also, you know, took me to a point where I, where it motivated me to want to spit a rhyme that was just crazy. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that was kind of what motivated me to have rhyme books, books full of rhymes and, you know, all of that. And, and then when I was in high school, you know, um, there was a dude I'd moved and there was this kid in the neighborhood, white kid, um, well, actually a black kid and a white kid. Black kid wanted to rap. The white kid had his, um, you know, had like a really basic sampler and he would, you know, chop up other people's hip hop beats. You know what I mean? And we would record musical and record our own songs. And so that's when I started getting to the basics of song structure in terms of like writing a chorus. You know what I mean? Um, I didn't necessarily know how to count bars or anything like that. You know, so some one rhyme might be, you know, 18 bars and then another rhyme might be like, you know, eight bars and, you know, so I didn't really have the structure down, but I did understand a chorus, you know, and, you know, I started writing that and, and getting into writing a song, a complete song rather than just a rhyme to spit around my friends and hear a bunch of oohs and ahs. So, you know, that's, that's where I kind of, you know, my creativity even grew more. I'm curious because because of your background and especially um, your father and your mother's commitment to to academics, um, wh what's happening for you in school at this time? Like, are there teachers that are encouraging you to write or to like what? What? Who are the people in your life? P.S. You are literally the first person I've ever interviewed whose older sister put them on to to particular songs. Everyone is their older brother, so you you get the prize of the the dope older sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dope for other reasons. No, I'm kidding. You know, shout out to her. But um, she she definitely, you know, she put me on to a lot, a lot of music um, in the early part, you know. Um, and that's the thing is, I think we can't undervalue the role of women in hip hop and the role of women in the culture, just as consumers too and, and, and fans. Um, and tastemakers. A lot of, you know, I think what Tupac said the big, you know, about rap for what women want, um, because they they really are in a lot of ways the the, the people who shape uh, the sound of the music in a lot of cases. Um, <clears throat> but she definitely put me on. Um, I think, you know, I had a teacher, I only had, you know, th this could get really deep. So I'm, I'm gonna try and keep this this answer kind of short. But I don't think I got a whole lot of encouragement in a whole lot of ways from teachers. And this is why um, I try to tell young people who have certain sensitivities, you don't have to be black or Latino 
or anything like that. You can totally be white or Asian or, or whatever your background. But I tell people the importance of teachers and coaches and encouraging, encouraging your students and encouraging, you know, the athletes that you coach or whatever, even if they're not the best athlete or the best student or, you know, you're always going to have that special student. Um, but sometimes it's, it's the other person. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's the kid who's cutting up in class. You know, that kid needs probably needs you more. And I don't think I got a whole lot of encouragement. I think I got a lot of discouragement. And, you know, as somebody who didn't have a lot of confidence, um, I think the discouragement, uh, I think hurt me in a lot of ways uh, that I got traditionally in academia. And hip hop saved me because it gave me that confidence, you know? And that's one of the things I think is so important about hip hop, particularly for, for black men, is with all the indignities that we suffer on, on a day to day, in hip hop, for a moment, you literally get to be what you wanna be. You know what I mean? You can be, you know, uh, you know, when when you're you're called every name in the book, and I always talk about this in a lot of different contexts, but when you get on the wheels of steel or you get on the mic, you're grandmaster so-and-so. You know what I mean? You're uh, you know, you you may not be doctor or somebody esquire or anything, but guess what? When you pick up the mic. You know what I mean? You get to be whatever you called yourself. You, you get to be MC. That's a title that's respected in, you know, in our community. And I think that, that that's really powerful. And that really helped me in terms of confidence altogether was my alter ego, you know, gave me refuge from all of the, the degradation that I think I received in other parts of, of life and in other parts you know, you know, as a young black kid uh, who wasn't being encouraged in a lot of ways. Um, but the one teacher that did encourage me, her name, uh, Miss Corcoran, the, the, the one teacher that did encourage me, um, she was incredible. Um, and she loved poetry. And she got me into you know, reading Walt Whitman and, and a lot of other poets and black poets and white poets. And, and that, um, I can't say that it directly affected, you know, my rhymes or anything like that, but it definitely opened my mind to new ideas and new things. And I thought that that was so incredible. And the thing was, culturally, we were so different. She was a blonde haired drum major from Wheeling, West Virginia, you know? So that's what I mean when it doesn't have to be somebody who looks like you, even though I think that's important. Um, it's more about who believes in you. Cause I had black teachers that <laughs> discouraged me. It was this one woman saying, I see something special in you. And to, to, to date, that still means something to me. What was Ms. Corcoran your English teacher? Yes. And so, do you remember what grade that was? 
So I had Miss Corcoran in eighth grade, and then I had uh, her husband, Mr. Corcoran, who was pretty good himself uh, in 11th grade. So at, at this point, does, do, do you take on the pen name of Jesus, or do you have a, a is there an initial MC name that, I, that I'm unaware of? <laughs> so there is an initial MC name. Jesus was always kind of a nickname um, going back to sixth grade. Um, but my, everybody has the whack rap name, right? You know, so don't laugh at me. But I think my original rap name was Kid Icarus. You know, so that, that was my original rap name. No reason, you know what I mean? It was just something I picked out of thin air. And then, you know, later on, I was like, I might as well call myself what other people are calling me. Um, and so that's when Jesus came along. I'm curious, Jay, was because of your father's education and, and the history of education in, in your family, was college always something that you saw in your future? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, for me, you know, my for my dad's family, it was never uh, if you're going to college. It was when and it was where, excuse me. Um, so that was always something that I saw in my future, definitely. Um, I, I never, I never considered anything, you know, else really. Um, you know, I think my dad at one point and, and where I went to school too, that was kind of, you know, I went to a private school. So that was kind of like the expectation. Um, nobody dropped out. Nobody went to the military. Um, unless they were going to go to the Naval Academy or to West Point or to VMI or the Citadel or something like that. And I really didn't see that in my future. Um, so college was pretty much a, a, a given and a definite for me. I wonder how, how you feel like being triple degreed, getting your bachelor's, your master's and your doctorate, like how that college experience while at the same time being a, a, a recording artist who's making music, who is performing around the area, but also moving units in Japan, like how it is that you kind of married those two worlds of being an, an artist and a scholar? Um, I did. Um, but I also will say that, you know, at one point I thought I was going to blow up <laughs> as a rapper. Um, and so continuing with my education past college um, was kind of like plan 1A. You know, uh, plan one was I was going to be, you know, a famous rapper and then I was going to expand into to different things. And um, plan 1A was what, you know, I, I always thought about things and I still think about things this way is what distinguishes me from other people? You know what I mean? I don't have necessarily that good from the hood story, you know, um, or that come up story. What about my story is unique? And I think, you know, education became part of, you know, the uniqueness of my story was I was a college graduate, you know, then I had a master's degree and then, you know, um, by the time I had a doctorate, I kind of knew I wasn't going to be a famous rapper. 
but you know the fact that i was pursuing one at one point um that really was something that i thought made me unique um and i thought was going to help me in my rap career was you know here is somebody who um has specialized knowledge that other rappers don't have so when he's rapping about this you know he's bringing in different ideas um that come from his educational background it's it's interesting because i've had the opportunity to sit in on some of your classes and i definitely see the 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 role that being an mc has played in your in your development as an educator like your students are um enthralled with your lectures hanging on every word and transformed by the experience like you've won multiple awards um where you've been nominated by by students and so it's clear that um that time on the stages um has paid off in your in your professional life um i wonder you and then we think about today kind of the work that you're doing in media um it's it's for a much larger audience um usually where someone is attacking your ideas or asking you to defend someone else's which oftentimes aren't your ideas are asking you to defend they're actually just to defend a position i wonder how you feel like you know that that experience of sometimes battling of sometimes performing um has shaped the way it is that you've developed your kind of public persona as as Dr. Nichols uh, on various media outlets thing i'll say is Uh, a lot of the practice that I got on stages or some of the stages I have to thank none other than Mazi Mutafa who you know as president of the BSU at the University of Maryland booked me for some shows um and and paid me you know um so that was um something that I think gave me a lot of experience and and I have to thank you know my brother for always you know or often looking out and giving me those opportunities and giving me opportunities to uh open for you know big name artists um you know so he he was definitely a part of that development and part of you know giving me that experience i think the big thing is that you know when what rapping on a stage is giving me is that it's rare that i freeze in front of a crowd i i like an audience you know what i mean i wish i could see all of you know whoever's watching you know i only see black picasso's uh comments popping up on the screen every now and again i think i saw omar um but i wish i could see everybody who was watching you know um it gets me excited um you know of course i have nerves there's no question about it um and i'm somebody who quite honestly has sometimes you know battle with uh you know some self-esteem issues and 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 not thinking I'm good enough and I think it was hip hop that you know got me excited to go in and and face those fears and want to be in front of a crowd want the microphone you know what I mean um whether it's in front of a classroom or as Mazia seen and uh you know he's he's had me on panels before and sometimes he has to give me that look like yo don't answer every question <laughs> you know what I mean don't 
don't take up everybody's time. Um, but definitely, you know, those opportunities to get have my perspective heard uh, are things that I revel in and things that I enjoy. Um, and so uh, those are, you know, where I think those two worlds have kind of married each other um, is the opportunity to actually give my perspective and to actually uh, speak to people. And in a classroom setting, the cool part is they, you know, they speak back. I don't just hear a cheer, you know, I hear feedback. I hear people like, well, what about this or what about that? And, and in other media, it's the same thing. You know, this is to me, it's like the old MC battles when I used to go down to Erico's uh, on U Street. You know, I was not the best battle MC, you know, uh, Mozzie even clowns me because my freestyle is very ABC, you know. Um, the cat jumped over the moon and Jesus is in the room and I'll put you in the tomb, you know, that kind of, you know, it's not, don't look for the, you know, the super complex, you know, uh, exp, uh, you know, super califragilistic expialidocious freestyle for me. But, you know, um, still being able to think quickly on your feet you know what i mean and being able to answer and retort when somebody is attacking not necessarily you personally but your position your position um and i think again all of that the hip-hop experiences that i had gave me a little bit of training for those situations where i'm not quite easily rattled um and so you know you can have somebody who i've seen rattle you know i've seen tucker carlson rattle really smart people you know because he's just prepared with some sort of logical fallacy um and i'm not easily rattled you know i'm not easily taken out of my zone if you're battling and you take what somebody said personally and you get mad then it looks like it's true you know and then you're not thinking clearly so to me you know somebody comes up with a with a with a dope line about me oh your your shape up is crooked your blah 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 you know um i just have to stand there you know and kind of be ready when it's my turn you know i'm not going to get all rattled and angry about it so Speaking of uh, your your current work as a as a pundit, I know the, the other thing that you've been doing really for the last few years is um, blogging. So you had, I know you were contributing to a blog that was called Diverse Patriots, and I know now you're a part of a, a new blog. Can you talk a little bit about the, the writing that you're doing, and even if if there's some book work that you also have um, in the process? Actually, my last column just ended. I was writing for a uh, a publication called Roca News um but I think they're they're moving in a different direction they're trying to do more of like a bar stool sports kind of thing so my my um you know political writing has kind of ended for them um I still do political writing every now and again i was you know i've written for a lot of different people from al jazeera to foxnews.com to uh, nbcnews.com a couple of different outlets 
Um, I still, I think most recently and most often write for uh, a website that's actually known as being a right wing website, but they always want kind of the counterpoint. They're trying to do point counterpoint now. And so I write for a website called um, The Daily Caller um, <clears throat> occasionally and going to be doing some more work with them in terms of podcasting and, and other things. Um, so, you know, I've kind of gotten used to kind of getting behind enemy lines. Uh, Roka News isn't isn't necessarily that way. They're kind of neutral. But a lot of the, the work that I've done with others um, has been, um, oh, I can't even say that. It, it's been on both sides of the aisle. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy writing. You know, I enjoy having my perspective out there, you know. One of the things that I'm doing really recently in terms of creativity is I've been writing a television show too. So, you know, I just enjoy, you know, as you probably can see, I always have like a million thoughts in my head. You know what I mean? There's a bunch of things swimming in my head. And when I get an opportunity to get it out, you know, it's, you know, I enjoy that. And when I get to actually share it with people, um, you know, it, it really is something that's cathartic for me, like just the way writing a rhyme was, you know, writing a rhyme to me, there's certain people that just love like the, you know, the rhyme structure. And I love that. And two, um, there's some people that, you know, just love doing something creative, you know, with rhymes. I love that too. There are certain people that, you know, just love the props they get from writing a dope rhyme. I love that too. But there are a lot of people, I think when they, when it comes to hip hop and we're writing rhymes, it's about the catharsis of it, the, the letting everything out. And I can do that with a rhyme or I can do that with a script or I can do that with a blog, um, whatever's on my mind, you know, it just so happens with the blogs, it's usually political uh, or social, you know, um, it might be, you know, with, with you know, writing a, a film or a TV show, it might be, you know, a, a different thing, it might be a love story, it might be a whole lot of different things, but there's something in my mind and on my heart that I want to get out. And this gives me the opportunity to do it. Um, and so in that ways, to me, it's no different than writing a rhyme. You know what I mean? Um, and you're gonna get props from it in some cases, you know? So there's that element, you know, if you write it well, if it's well written, um, people will enjoy that. And you'll be able to look back on it and be like, damn, it's like, you know, any MCs on here, you probably have picked up one of your old rhyme books and you flip to one rhyme and you're like, damn, that was dope. You know what I mean? I never recorded that. You know, and that, you know, with the blog, it's the same thing. Or listen to one of your old songs and being like, yo, that was a that was a dope song. You know, um, and so it, it gives me an opportunity to to really get whatever's on my chest out to the public. Dope. 
I got one last question for you, but but the is a question and a half. Because we didn't actually talk about how you got into commentating, like how you got on television and the radio and podcasting. Like how'd you build those relationships? But that's not my question. My question is advice that you would give to your younger self. Like now having been down this road as far as you've been, what's advice you would give to that um, middle school or elementary school or even high school, Jason? If you can try to do both of those, we got two minutes. Okay. Um, that I would give my, my younger self is um, advice I would give to anybody. And that is weather the storm, you're okay. You know, it's gonna be okay. Um, and I know that sounds kind of general and it's not probably the advice that you were looking for, but I, I would definitely tell, you know, uh, there were a lot of situations where something didn't go my way, whether it was in music, whether it was academically, whether it was professionally, and I thought it was the end of the world. Um, and I think that I made things harder on myself than I should have. And one of the things that I know is like what I'm doing with the with my television show that hopefully will come out in a couple of months um, with Life and Justice, you know, I may put it out there, it may not be well received or only gets a hundred views on YouTube or whatever. Um, I have to understand that that's not a failure and that I always bounce back with something different. Um, I was just up for, I think, I think it's, fair to probably say this. I mean, it's not definite yet, but I was up for a really cool job um, commentating with the Lincoln Project. And I was really excited about it. I was praying hard, you know, um, for this job. And it's not certain, but I'm pretty sure I didn't get it, even though I did a couple of interviews and I thought the interviews went really well. But um, now I could, you know, be like, oh man, now it's over. Cause I know Fox isn't going to hire me now, which I don't care. I don't want to work for Fox or for any of those right wing networks, you know, being the, with the way that our society has gone now and what we're seeing recently, I want no parts of that. But, you know, I thought it would have been interesting to, to have this gig and it doesn't look like that's going to happen. But, you know, I always bounce back with something new. Um, so I would just be like, you know, don't take everything so personally, everything's going to be okay. Keep working on your craft. That's the important thing. Just always work on your craft, you know, um, stay focused and don't, you know, sit there and think about every little thing that didn't go your way. And then you're going to miss a lot of your blessings. And right now I feel so blessed to be up here. One of the things in the platforms that. I've always had over the last 20 some odd years since 2002 has been words meets in life. Um, and it's always been a, it's been such a blessing that I now appreciate a whole, whole lot more than when we were first starting out. Um, I appreciate what words meets in life has done, you know, not only for the community, but for me personally and my own personal development. So shout out to all of you who are watching, who work with words meets in life. You guys are part of a really important and big legacy. And, um, you know, I was part of that legacy. And so don't screw it up. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, you know, but keep up the good work and, and keep up this beautiful, incredible name 
that was built and, and, and created in DC and for the DC community and for the old DC and now moving into the new DC, um, you guys are, are now a staple of hip hop in Washington, DC. It's a name that people will always attach to hip hop in Washington, DC. You're, you're stepping into big shoes here and you know, Mozzie expects a lot. Um, and he should, because that's where the brand has gone. And, and I'll say this, it's been such a help to me, you know, in my creativity and my opportunities. When I ask, when I'm looking for some way to partner with something, I always come to Mozzie because of what he's been able to do with Words, Beats, and Life. So salute. No doubt. The feeling is mutual, good brother. Um, your, your legacy in this work uh, beyond Words, Beats, and Life um it is well known and respected and so i'm i'm honored to have spent this hour with you i actually really did learn a lot which i feel so terrible because you're one of my best friends and i feel like i didn't know a lot of that stuff so i really appreciate you really going into great detail and, and helping us all see the journey that 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 you are on that is a continuation of the legacy of your ancestors and your family um, i want to thank you for spending this time with us and look forward to to you getting more projects greenlit, looking forward to being one of the people typing in comments on on the on the show. And so uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. That was Dr. Jason Nichols. If you enjoyed this conversation, which I hope you did, share it. It's archived on Facebook, archived on YouTube. Um, and yeah, this has been an honor and a privilege to be able to to, to bring in such great speakers um, who are doing really important work. Uh, so follow Jason on all the socials. You can find him. Um, for now, check out these commercials. All right? Peace. This podcast was produced by Executive Director Mazi Mutafa. Post-production by Rhythm Lingo Music. Past episodes can be streamed on Spotify, Apple Podcast and Mixcloud. Words, Beats, and Life podcasts are produced through funding from partner grants and in-kind donations from people like you. Visit wblinc.org slash donate to make a contribution.